0: Welcome to the Thursday afternoon edition of London Live. It's Jess Brady, your guest host. Not Mike. He's still on vacation, enjoying every moment of it, I hope. Well-deserved. But yes, it's Thursday. I'm back in the talk side of the booth. Yesterday we had the Jays game, so there was no show. But that's that's okay, because we're back for the last two days of this short week. Hope everyone settled into it. I know on Tuesday, <laughs> might have felt a little bit rough after the long weekend. It's hard to get back into the groove of things. But it's been a very busy week, news-wise. So, uh, you know, I'm sure it's it's kind of propelled us along. It always feels like that for me. It feels like the weeks just kind of fly by uh, as as different, you know, stories come up. All of a sudden, it's, it starts at Monday, clearly. And then all of a sudden, it's Friday. And you're like, whoa, where did this week go? And this week is no exception. Big news yesterday was the announcement from the RCMP that they believed that they have found the bodies of the B.C. murder suspects. So the latest on that case is that uh, autopsies are being done on the bodies that were found up in northern Manitoba, where the RCMP had really descended to find the two suspects, Kamikloud and Briar Schmigelski. So it ended, you know, at least I think like two and a half weeks of searching for these individuals who were wanted in connection with uh, the death of one person, for sure. They were charged in that case. And there were also questions as to whether they were directly connected to the deaths of two other individuals in northern BC. Now, this story, now that we have, you know, information from the RCMP that, uh, The suspects are most likely no longer living. Things will quiet down now, but it has been it really has been, you know, dominating the headlines across Canada, around the world. Obviously, in Australia, it was a big story because one of the people who is deceased in all of this uh, was a young man from Australia. He and his girlfriend, uh, who was uh, an American, they were traveling across Canada and they were up in northern BC and they are two individuals of the three who died in connection with this case. So there's been a lot of discussion about the victims, a lot of discussion about the suspects. And the media has, you know, obviously been trying to find out as much as possible about everyone that's involved to help people understand a what happened and be how it could happen and and just you know to satisfy the natural human curiosity as to what has gone on in this case and obviously for a good chunk of this story It is a public safety issue that that was going on, you know, for uh, people in B.C., right across the prairies as as the RCMP kind of issued that public safety alert Uh, in Ontario. For a time, there was the alert saying that the OPP was investigating uh, reports of possible sightings. Obviously, there was nothing ever confirmed in Ontario. But yeah, it was it was a big story and for good reason. Now, in the follow up, as the story winds down, um, reporters, especially out in BC, uh, they are, you know, they've been f- trying to follow up with the families of the suspects, so the McLeods and the Schmigelskys. And uh, it's, just, it's just, just something that I saw last night. One of our colleagues with Global BC, Kylie Stanton, she's been following this story and she tweeted out a picture of the, a close-up shot of the front door to the uh, grandmother's home of Briar Schm- Schmigelski, excuse me, in Port Alberni. And there's a, a typed out note and I'll read you what the letter says. And it's taped to the, the front glass porch door of the house. Again, you can't see anything of the home itself. It's not identifying the home, nothing like that. So the note says, "To all media reporters and camera people, we request that you respect our privacy at this time by keeping off our property and not ringing the doorbell or banging on our door. We have you have become a nuisance to us and our neighbors. We will not be making any statement." Fair. That is a fair statement to make. I do not blame them because the media scrutiny and public scrutiny in general has been intense. For sure. So I don't have a problem with the family saying that. I can appreciate their standpoint. The interesting thing that I saw from these tweets or this tweet were all the tweets in reply to uh, to Kylie Stanton's initial post. A lot of people piling on talking about the mainstream media, that uh, media in general is a nuisance. And, you know, a, a lot of people supporting the message of leave the families alone. You know, saying that some of the media individuals should be ashamed of themselves. And I I understand why a lot of people in the public would have this reaction to the coverage, because it's a lot uh, with news cycles the way they are now. It's like feeding the beast. You're constantly uh, pushing out content. And that's that's a, that's the a format for for a lot of uh, outlets. You've got radio stations where you have a, a things called a news wheel, like we do here at nine eighty CFPL in the morning, and the afternoon. Um, you know, the twenty four hour news cycle is is a thing. You can think of CNN, uh, Canadian uh, news channels like CTV Newsnet, CBC has uh, you know the twenty four hour thing going on too. Global, we obviously have our newscasts. Um, it's there's there's a you you are always looking for content now. What I would say to perhaps provide some context to the content is that when especially a story like this, there's a real public interest. And so the function of journalists, as I see it anyway, is is to provide the information that people both need to live their day to day lives and also the information that they want because that's that determines what's what's newsworthy right so when i come in in the mornings to determine the lineup for the news wheel with my colleagues we often say to each other if we're looking at potential options for a lead we say well what are people talking about so when the raptors were on the verge of winning the nba final you betcha we were leading the raptors quite a bit <laughs> when they did win we let it and also when this case the BC Northern Murders were happening, and the investigation was in its early stages, and people just were full of questions about what was going on. You betcha, we were leading with that too, and it's it's human nature to want to understand something, right? And obviously, in moments of crisis, people do want to have their privacy because it, it these things are traumatic. So I absolutely understand anyone who does not want to speak to members of the media when they personally are going through something or, you know, it, it can feel like the world is kind of descending on them with a microscope. I get that 100%. But I will say this, and I can't speak to media out in BC, although I would suspect that it's, it's similar, especially in London, media that I've been... I've had the privilege to work with both in this newsroom and, and colleagues and from other other shops, if you will. We try to use the utmost sensitivity when we're dealing with people who have uh, been directly involved in a traumatic event. You know, we ask because that is kind of that's that's part of the job uh, is is that phone call sometimes to family or friends to ask if they feel comfortable sharing information about what's gone on, whether it be an incident with a loved one or what have you. Often people will say, no, thank you. I, I would like not to comment. And that's within their rights, 100 percent. And I understand not wanting to. But you'd be surprised, too, at the number of people who, uh, you know, would, would be are open rather chatting and sharing their feelings and their thoughts and their memories of someone who may have passed away or, you know, just, you know, ha- has has suffered through a really terrible event. I can think of, um, you know, public campaigns to help with fundraising that families have reached out to the media even recently with different uh, cases that have happened. You know, think of Tristan Roby, who was, you know, a victim of the hit and run crash on Exeter when he was riding his bike. His family and friends have been uh, very gracious in speaking about their situation and wanting to raise awareness, not only to uh, apprehend a suspect implicated in that case, whomever they may be, but also to reach out for help because they need it. So it is, I. I. I it's a tough one. It's a tough situation. And I'll read you Kylie Stanton's follow-up tweet to that. Um, to the one with the, the picture on, on the grandmother's door. Just further to my previous tweet, no reporter likes the door knock, quote unquote, but it is part of the job. Sometimes the families want the opportunity to talk. Most of the time they don't. To be clear, we respected the family's request. And that's, that's the nature of, of how this kind of works. And it's all you can do is ask with respect and then respect the answer that you get. Do not badger. If someone does not want to speak, I understand But it is an opportunity for those individuals to to reach out and to express themselves and, you know, ask for help if that's the case. If it's not, if it's just to to share about their loved ones, then that's fine, too. I absolutely feel for families who are going through these situations because it it can be overwhelming. Um, And when you have a ton of different outlets, especially international attention, it's 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 tough. But I would just urge anyone who thinks that it's it's just for the sake of sensationalizing, respectfully, I don't agree. But then again, I am obviously on the other side of things. My perspective is one from the news media. But I can tell you that it's, it's not done rashly or with disregard. It is ultimately done with respect and in an attempt to understand what's gone on, whatever the story is, and to allow people a chance to express themselves. So I just thought. As, as the coverage is going to now ramp down, and rightly so, now that the case has uh, more than likely come to one facet of an end, if you will, the emergent nature of it is is over. We'll wait now in the weeks and months to come to hopefully gain more insight into the specific events that happened. But now the search is over, seemingly. So I just thought I would share that because that was a moment where I, I kind of saw it and I was like, ooh, it's unfortunate that that that's the way that some people feel about it but i do understand i do get it but i just wanted to share a little bit from the other side a different perspective okay now that i've talked about that at great length <laughs> we're going to take a quick break and when we come back from the break i'm going to tell you how you can win tickets to a london knights game during the upcoming season You heard Craig giving away tickets earlier this week on his show. It's my turn now. And I'm pumped for it. It's going to be really great. Uh, I tweeted about it to kind of tee up the fact that we're doing this giveaway. But do not send me uh, tweets with answers. You have to listen and then call in. So I'll give you the numbers just in case. It's 1-866-354-8255 or 519-643-2222, 643-2222. Okay, taking a quick break. When we come back. We're going to tell you how you can win Knights tickets. That's coming up on London Live. Welcome back to the show. It's Jess Brady here. I'm your guest host. Mike is on vacation. The lucky ducky him. <laughs> but he works very hard, so he very much deserves his time off. Before the break, I told you that I would have your chance to win tickets to a London Knights game this season. Hard to believe that we are already approaching preseason games. Woof. Tis the season. Things are getting very busy over at Budweiser Gardens with the team. Preparations are underway. It's exciting. It's always a fun time in London to be looking forward to the new season. There's always lots of promise in the air. And I'll tell you, there's nothing quite like being in Bud Gardens for a game, especially the first one of the season. Even if it's preseason, there's a real electricity. There's a real buzz when you're there. It's fun. It's very cool. I will tell you. I, in fact, was present at the very first game at Budweiser Gardens. That's right. My best friend and I had tickets to go and see the game. And do you know where our tickets were? (laughs) The second to last row in the upper bowl. (laughs) And that just shows you how popular it was because you betcha we were like there to get tickets as soon as we could. And it was so popular when it was opening up. So we went a little bit early and we were sitting in our seats and we were like, you know, it'll be okay. My friend Amanda and I were like, it's cool. Like we can see everything from up here. Like sure. It's, it's at a distance, but like, it's great. We can see everything. It'll be awesome. We were just happy to be there. We were loving life. Then as we get a little bit closer to the end of the, uh, warm-up skate (laughs) this lovely lady comes over to us and she says hi girls are you you're here for the game tonight obviously clearly these are your seats and we said yeah and she's like well how would you feel about moving down like a lot closer we looked at each other and we said yeah (laughs) she's like do you want to be the move of the game and we said yes (laughs) so uh, after they announced us like the winner of it, I think it happens like right at the beginning of the first period, like might be the first stop and play that they do this. Uh, the lovely lady came back and she took us right down to club seats, front row. <laughs> oh, we were in our glory. It was very exciting. So imagine you went from the second last row in the building right down front. Oh, yeah, it was great. We were big fans back in the day and obviously we're still fans now. But yeah, it was it was a big deal to us. I think we were about 16 at the time and uh, we're just very loyal fans. (laughs) So I'm going to kind of play into that nostalgia a little bit when I ask you this question. And I want you to call in with your answers. So again, 519-643-2222. You're probably saying, Jess, just spit out the question. Let's go. Okay, here it is. Cast your mind back to December of 2000. Oh, I'm digging deep. <laughs> there was a big trade that set off big waves in the Knights fandom. London got Dennis Weidman, who I also was a big fan of. He was great. So we got Dennis and some draft picks from Sudbury. We traded two people away. Give me one. Who was one person that was part of that trade that London sent to Sudbury? So again, December of 2000. We, London, the Knights, got Dennis Wideman and some draft picks from Sudbury. We gave Sudbury who? Two people. So 519 643 2222. Again, do not tweet at me. Talking to you, Andy. Andy's an excellent and loyal tweeter. But don't tweet at me. You got to call in. You can call from out of town 1 866 354 8255. I'll give you a little hint. Now, One of these fellas, both were, you know, obviously great guys. But one was a really, really big fan favorite. And he went on to have a pretty prolific NHL career. And he's still involved in hockey operations in his retirement. Woo, got some phone calls on the line. I like this. This is good. Okay. I'm going to go to Walter first. Hey, Walter, how's it going? How you doing? Good. How are you?
1: Pretty good. Uh, You're probably not aware of who I am. But if you talk to Mike Stubbs mm-hmm. and Jim Van Horn, they will give you my history. Okay. Uh, Dan Janchevsky and Chris Kelly. Oh,
2: <gasps> you did
0: both, Walter. Very I've been, nice. I've seen every
1: London night that's been here since 1963.
0: Oh, that's fantastic. Well, I am very impressed. That's great, Walter. Well, congrats. You won tickets to a Knights game this season. You'll, we'll get your information. I, I, I think Producer Kelly will grab that from you, and uh, you'll get hooked up with those tickets. Could
1: I, could I donate those tickets to um, kids that really need it? I have Seasons tickets.
0: Oh, that's absolutely lovely. I'd love to lovely. donate it
1: to anybody, anybody at the Children's Hospital or anybody out there that would like to call in. I'd like to donate them.
0: Okay, well, what we're going to do is we are going to arrange that through our promotions department to make sure that that gets handled properly. Okay, Walter? That's yeah. absolutely lovely of you to do that. What a, what a great sport.
1: Um, regardless, I'm known yeah. as the chair of Knight Nation. That's <laughs> lowercase And actually, I've been on CBC three or four times Oh wow. All. They call me prior to the season to make predictions. And talk to Mike Stubbs about the 2016 prediction. I predicted at the beginning of the season that the Knights would win the Memorial Cup. And I was on the air <clears throat> just prior to the final game in the Memorial Cup. And for about 15 minutes with Stubbsy and Van Horn. It's It's been a passion of mine all my life. So uh, I would like to, f- through through the chairman of Knight Nation, I'd like to have two kids or anybody that would need the tickets to have them.
0: Okay. Well, Walter, I I very much appreciate that. And you are very generous indeed. And it's been an honor chatting with you. I feel like I've, I'm talking to a, a local London Knights celebrity.
1: Well, Talk to Stubbsy and Van Horn and they you know all about it and the fact is I'm unfortunately I'm having surgery at the end of this month oh. and I will not be I'm normally on the air the first game with uh, Jim Van Horn because he needs the chair to officially open the season <laughs> and I will not be there so it's a, a, an honour to talk to you you do great work oh, too thank you. and uh, if you talk to Mike he'll tell you all about me
0: I absolutely will chat with Mike and I know that uh, everyone here I'm speaking on behalf of the entire 980 team and Mike and, and also Jim Van Horn we wish you all the very best with your recovery after your procedure and we look forward to chatting with you on air at at some point whenever you're feeling up to it about your predictions for the
1: season you know what anytime you need me
0: awesome Walter thank you so much and uh, I'm sure that Kelly is going to chat with you uh in just two seconds okay
1: yeah no problem take care have a wonderful day
0: you as well Walter (sighs) bye-bye okay so we had our winner Walter, and I mean, that was one and done. Boom, boom, fantastic. The chairman of Knights Nation. That was very, very good. I'm very impressed, very impressed indeed. I thought I might get like, I don't know, one wrong answer first, nah. Walter's all about it, he was all over it, love it. So, so good, all right, okay. That's how we're gonna play things, that's that's how we're gonna play things. (laughs) <laughs> and a very generous offer to also donate those tickets uh, to some other individuals. So that's great. We're we're gonna get in touch with Walter and uh, producer Kelly is gonna chat with him, and uh, we'll be we'll be in touch with Walter. Okay, we need to take a quick break for news coming up. We're gonna talk about this very interesting and different pilot project in running in downtown London and it's for uh, members of the homeless community here in the city. It's run by Adlosa. We're going to explain how this works. It's called a resting space. Coming me up on London Live on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to the program. It's Jess Brady here, your guest host. Also, just, just to tie up uh, what we were talking about before, news, our London Knights tickets giveaway. In case you were wondering, if you didn't get through because Walter scooped ya with his fantastic answer, quick draw. That's what I can call Walter. He's so good. Uh, single game tickets, by the way, for regular season Knights games go on sale Saturday. So you can get those online, londonknights.com, or you can go in person down to box office at Budweiser Gardens. But again, Saturday. Saturday, Saturday, Saturday is when your single game tickets go on sale for the London Knights uh, 2019-2020 season. Hard to believe (laughs) that we're heading into 2020. I don't want to think about that yet. It's still August, so I'm not going to worry about it. That's right. So, yes, again, congratulations to Walter. And, uh, yeah, it's exciting. New year, new season, very, very exciting. So before the break, I told you that uh, we were going to talk about a pilot project that's been running in London. It's been going on for for a few months now. And it's run through Atlosa. Yeah, which is an agency here in the city which is doing fantastic work. And I had a chance to sit down with a couple of fantastic people who work with Atlosa this morning. I talked with Andrea Jibb, who's the Indigenous Community Planner for ADLOSA, and Terry King, who's the team lead of Resting Space. And Resting Space is the pilot project that uh, we had a chance to talk about pretty in-depth. And I think that it's well worth uh, spending that much time talking about because uh, we have long discussed issues of homelessness and poverty in our city, and these issues disproportionately affect Indigenous uh, community members. And so Andrea and Terry graciously came in earlier today to sit down and and talk with me about the pilot project and the work that ATLOSA is doing. And uh, we'll play that interview now. Ladies, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate you coming in uh, and, uh, you know, taking a few moments to chat. Thank you for having us. <laughs> so for anyone who does not know about Atlosa, and they should, uh, what is actually exactly does the organization do? Like, where are you, first of all, located in the city? And what is the work that you're doing?
2: Yeah, so we actually have three locations, but our downtown head office is located at 343 Richmond Street, um, and we also have Zhao. We also operate Zhao Shelter, located just off Wellington on Hill Street, and then we have St George Street Supportive Housing. But most of our programming happens out of our downtown head office. So Adalosa is an Indigenous culture-based um, agency which offers programs and services for the entire family unit. So um, our, I guess, kind of our origins are in violence against women. That's how that's how we came to operate the shelter, and then. We kind of saw a need for holistic services for the entire family unit, so we have programming from babies and moms to children and youth to um, older youth and then adult men and women, and then we also have elders as well.
0: Wow, that's that is like as you said, like, comprehensive. You mm-hmm. know, working with the whole family unit there, Andrea. And do you happen to know, just offhand, and if you don't have a rough number, that's totally fine. Kind of putting you on the spot. Uh, roughly, how many people, individuals that you're that you're working with?
2: Oh, I don't know,
0: <laughs> <laughs> dozens and dozens. Lots. We have yeah.
2: lots, lots of folks, um, and so we serve the urban indigenous population, but. Um, Some folks may not know, we actually have three First Nation communities located about 30 minutes south of London, and so a lot of the folks we serve are coming from these communities as well.
0: Wow. Oh, okay, so it's it's like you said, comprehensive, working with a lot of individuals. Um, and now, specifically, what what I asked you you ladies to come in to talk about uh, is the resting space pilot project. And uh, uh, that I, I learned about it from a great article that was done by Megan Stacy with the Free Press. And uh, that's why I reached out and I was like, I want to I want to talk to Terry and Andrea and, and, and learn more about it. So maybe we could we could talk about I guess how this pilot project started and uh, what's going on with it because we're, we're serving uh, individuals in our community who are, you know, uh, they are looking for housing. They're, they are homeless individuals. So it's, it's really a, an important piece of the puzzle that is going on here in the city that you guys are working on.
3: Mm-hmm. And Terry,
0: I don't know if you wanted to jump in with some specifics on it.
3: Uh, well, we can st- we can talk about how it started, but I think that it's important to talk about Andrea's work that she's been uh, doing. That's kind of uh, accumulating to uh, a broader need that's going to uh, support those experiencing homelessness within sure. the city. So Andrea has been working on um, a project for the last two years now, and uh, maybe she can speak about that first, and then we yeah. can talk about the first step of that uh, that research in being the resting space.
0: Certainly, Andrea, well, go
2: for it. Yeah. <laughs> thanks, Terry. So. Um, For the past two years, myself and a number of other community agencies have been working towards um, the creation of an Indigenous homelessness plan for London. Um, And so this need um, is acknowledged in the City of London's homeless prevention system because there's a really um, high number of of Indigenous peoples in London who've been experiencing homelessness and very little in the way of culture-based programs and services, right? And so... Um, that work has been ongoing for about two years, and we're looking at 2020, having releasing a strategic plan on Indigenous homelessness. Um, so, when um, I guess the resting space came about as part of the City of London's Coordinated and Informed Response Project. And so, this is also a really comprehensive project that includes, I don't even know, probably about 20 agencies, yeah. programs, wow. and services. Um, so, the concept was how do we support folks? Um, who are experiencing these in-the-moment behaviors that was getting, you know, police called, a lot of other emergency services, um, and was ultimately getting folks banned or with service restrictions from other shelters or programs and services. And so we all came together, which is really exciting because I don't know that um Agencies and services had worked together in this type of capacity in the past. So that's really exciting. And ultimately what came about was the need for more beds. And at Losa, um, and the Center of Hope, the Salvation Army Center of Hope, had. we each were asked to host 10 beds overnight. And so Terry came in um, and she had the site operational in about three weeks. So she can really <laughs> Super speak scary. to how like yeah. the early stages of how that was established.
3: Yeah, so uh, we had three weeks to get the program together and so I came in uh, the second week of March and we had April 1st was our, our opening dates where we were going to have people in and we were going to be supporting them on an overnight basis. So uh, there was a lot to work to be done. Uh, we had to get the space ready for individuals, uh, make sure that uh, it was appropriate safety wise, um, that it was comfortable, that uh, we had the appropriate amount of beds. So we do have 10 beds, 10 spaces for folks. And we do reserve two of those beds for um, indigenous uh community members who might need that extra support, uh, but we do have an open-door policy, so uh, anybody can come access uh, supports with us. Um, once we started uh, operating in April, it was a little bit of a slow start. Uh, it was really interesting working with different agencies and that coordinated response Um as a central coordinator to uh, bring people to us, uh, so it was. It was pretty. It was a slow start, but within a couple of weeks, we started to see our numbers grow and grow and grow. And <laughs> now that we're going into our, our fourth month, fourth fifth month, um, we're we're pretty much at capacity every night. So wow. we're seeing a lot of people want to come back uh, for a variety of different reasons. Uh, there are no beds available uh, sometimes for for folks, and uh, the space is comfortable, especially for those uh, with Indigenous. Uh, ancestry. So uh, we're trying to really provide like an educational piece especially for those in the community who may have been using substances uh, that they can access an indigenous agency and uh, that they can access some medicine so we do offer medicines uh, with our services so uh, anybody who comes in has access to a smudge uh, we have like cedar cedar tea um, we also have our traditional foods like berries and uh, wild rice that that we we provide to to folks and so it's it's all about that educational piece and that uh, reconnection to their cultural cultural background. And uh, so for that reason, we're seeing a lot of people coming back. And we're also seeing some people saying like, yeah, I think I do have you know, family members who are Indigenous, and I would like to learn more. And I think I am eligible for a status card, like, I'd like to look into that. And oh, like, there's sweats, like, yeah, I would love to, to join a sweat, like, tell us about that. And we've also just recently uh, had one of our, our relief staff, a casual relief staff member, who works with wampum belts, and he came in and did teachings on the wampum. And uh, we've actually uh, started a belt that all community members are contributing towards together, um, as part of that, like, unity that Community feel that family feel, uh, working together to to create something beautiful. So that's uh, that's really what we want to um, be able to provide at the the resting space is a sense of community, a sense of family, a sense of belonging, and a sense of uh, contributing to to the space.
0: That's part one of my chat about. At Lhosa's Resting Space Pilot Project with Andrea Jib and Terry King. We need to take a quick break. When we come back, we will uh, finish off that interview with part two. That's coming up on London Live on 980 CFPL. Jess Brady here on your Thursday edition of London Live on 980 CFPL. When we left off, Andrea Jib and Terry King were talking about the sense of community, family and belonging that they've worked so hard to establish through the Resting Space pilot project at ADLOSA. Here's part two of our discussion. I feel like it would be such a positive place to be because individuals in our in our community in London uh who are experiencing homelessness, very often they do not have social interactions with with other people in the community all that often, Mm -hmm. right? They're very isolated, and that builds, uh, you know, just uh, like so many issues. When you are isolated, you don't have human connection, interaction, I mean it's just it's heartbreaking right where people are, are are lonely and they maybe don't see a way out and i'm not surprised that people come back because of the connections that you're building there it sounds like it is a very, a very welcoming space and uh you know it's and it's a place where they individuals can go as you guys have mentioned where and when in other cases they're not allowed to go back to certain shelters right so it's it seems like it is a much more uh you know Meet, meeting people where they are and trying to help them move move forward and, you know, find paths forward that will work for them.
3: Absolutely. Every day, it's just meeting them where they're, where they're at. Yeah. Uh, and so we are uh, very welcoming for all behaviors. Uh, so our model was based off of uh, kind of supporting those who are exhibiting, you know, disruptive in the moment behaviors. Uh, and so we have pretty low barriers around that. Uh, but we recognize that every day is different. So, uh, you know, if we do come across somebody who maybe isn't being respectful of the place in the moment, we might ask just for a short break and you know, maybe we'll reassess and after a 20 minute walk or maybe the next night. but um, that's as far as our, our barriers will get because we know that we have to meet people in the moment and that every day is different.
0: It builds a lot of trust, I would imagine, with individuals who are who are seeking out this service, because if they know that they have a place to go, even if there is that break of a night or 20 minutes, as you said, Terry, they know that it's they can still come back. And where in some cases, I feel like they would feel very shut out if they are not allowed to, you know, come back to a place after one instance of, you know, bad, a bad day or a bad night, like you said, like this is this is. I feel like would build a lot of trust being able to do that and seeing the same individuals who are working at Atlosa and building those connections. It would feel very good for people. I would imagine.
3: That's our hope. Yeah. Yeah. And sure. I, I believe that, that we are providing that, that sense of hope and uh, more importantly, that like sense of community and um, that sense of visibility as well. Uh, so like through some of Andrea's work, like a, a common narrative was that, um, like folks just feel invisible throughout the day. Like nobody wants to talk to them. Like people just look past them. And our space is is really open. It's really warm. It's really inviting. And there's no barriers between participants or community members accessing our space and staff. So if somebody wants to sit at the desk and talk with staff for a couple hours about how their day went or, you know, what their aspirations are or whatever the case may be, um, staff take that time and and sit and talk with them and listen to them. And I, I think that's where we see a lot of, of difference because we can uh, have that space and that time to to develop those uh, relationships in a more meaningful way than than in, in a shelter that's a little bit bigger and a little bit busier and it's taxing for staff in, in bigger locations to have those like long lengthy conversations with individuals
0: yeah, it's more institutionalized in the other centers and and it necessarily must be that way in some cases because of the size of of, of the shelter or what have you the organization as you were mentioning but yeah yeah, it's it. This feels, in the way that it's described and in in how I read uh, about it a little bit, it feels much more like a home. And you know, like as you say, it's called resting space. And it's it just it gives me that sense. Hearing you ladies talk about it, it that's that's the sense that I get about it. It sounds very much like you're hitting the mark in terms of what you were hoping to accomplish and and the the sense of safety that's there for people.
2: Mm-hmm. This is so key when we talk about Indigenous homelessness, especially because um, Indigenous homelessness is situated in a context of our shared history, right, of, of this area mm-hmm. in southwestern Ontario, in Canada more broadly, where um, we have colonization that happened. And so it was ultimately people's relationships and families that were targeted as part of that process. And so many folks who are homeless... Um, have lost those connections to their community and their family and much more broadly are a really extended family of, of an Indigenous notion of family where we consider a, a much wider range of relationships than um, we consider in our Western context, right? And so that's why the con- that reconnection to culture and us as human beings first and foremost, right, like, that sense of family and that's and that's really how we see folks as extended family members right and so um you know folks who are using substances or may have mental health like you wouldn't just cast your family members out right you would try to support them in a good way
0: yeah and that's i, I feel like that's such a a nice and just the, the whole idea of it that you know you guys are there Helping individuals and, you know, they're disconnected from the immediate family, the larger family, as you were saying, uh, Andrea, it's nice to know that those supports are, are in place and, and there are people there who care and who want to help. And um, if people are listening and they're hearing about ADLOSA and uh, resting space and they're like, we want to get involved, we want to help. Uh, is there a, a way for people in the general public to do that? Are, are you looking for anything in particular right now for supports for the agency and for the program?
3: Thank <laughs> you. So for the program itself, uh, there's a few items that we kind of rotate through really quickly. So I'm always looking for securing donations from community members, such as like box cereal, uh, cold and warm cereal, like oatmeal or, or Fruit Loops, whatever the case may be. Uh, we always go through those really quickly and uh, coffee mugs and pillowcases. And with the colder weather coming, uh, we're going to need blankets. Uh, you know, we have 10 beds and uh, that's not to say that uh, sometimes we have to actually turn people away. Uh, because we're at capacity. Uh, So it's really nice weather right now. So some community members will ask for a blanket um, and kind of, you know, go find a a safe space outside and and kind of catch a little nap that way. And so we'll give a a blanket. uh, So then that kind of leaves us short. So we're always Mm -hmm. we're always in need of blankets, especially with the colder weather coming to be able to provide for those in our space and to provide for uh, individuals who may choose to sleep outside.
2: Fantastic. All right, and I think much more broadly, we would totally welcome and invite any community members who want to learn more about Atlosa to come and visit us at 343 yeah. Richmond Street. <laughs> like we have, um, we have a social enterprise where we sell indigenous kind of arts and crafts type stuff, and all proceeds go back to support our programming. We also have the See Me Art Project, which is housed at our head office. Um, and also, with really exciting news, we have the second annual Atlosa Peace Awards coming up. And so you can check that out on our website at uh, atlosa.com. And um, that'll be held in November. And so, if folks want to get involved with that, you can buy tables, you can nominate someone for an award. It's really, really exciting. And that'll, that'll be a fundraiser where all, all the proceeds will go to supporting Xiaowanong Shelter and other programs like the resting space that we have at Atlosa. Fantastic. Londoners,
0: you have your you have your your notes. You should go out and learn some more about what's going on. Terry and Andrea, thank you so much for joining us uh, to talk about uh, the Resting Space project. And we wish you all the best of luck as it continues.
3: Thank you very much for having us. And I just wanted to say thank you again to all the community members who have supported us so so far in our journey. Uh, it's really appreciated, and we look forward to uh, that continued relationship with our community members. And hoping to see um, to see you uh, come down to Adlosa and and check out what we have.
0: Fantastic. Thank you again. Thank you. That was Andrea Jib and Terry King from Atlosa, talking about their uh, pilot project, Resting Space, which is uh, meant to, to help people here in London who are homeless and looking for some assistance and a place to quite literally rest. And also of note, wanted to mention that uh, we talked about this back in July when I was filling in for Mike uh, Museum London is still has those um, tours the walking tours that they that they are running through the summer and there is another edition of the Indigenous walking tour that's happening on the 24th of August. There, I think there are two separate walks that are happening that day, one in the morning, one in the afternoon. And those walks are being led by Anishinaabe educator and journalist Sarah May Chitty. And there's a stop at At ATLOSA on that walking tour. So there you go. You can go on the walking tour and also learn more about ATLOSA at the same time. We need to take a quick break. We'll be right back on London Live on 980 CFPL. It's Jess Brady here filling in for Mike this week. He's on vacation. Right before we go into news, just wanted to give you a little tee up as to what's happening after the news package with Jacqueline LaBelle. Uh, You may have heard that there could be changes coming to green bin programs across Ontario. Yeah, there was an announcement related to that from the Ford government uh, earlier this week. We're going to talk with Jay Stanford from the City of London. He is the Director of Environmental Programs and Solid Waste. And he's going to chat with us after the news about his reaction to this uh, uh, possible development and uh, what it might mean for London. So that's coming up after the news on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to the program. It's Jess Brady here. I'm your guest host this week. Mike is on vacation. Before the break, I told you that we were going to be talking about green bin programs, recycling across the province, and we're talking about that and potential changes that could be coming to the program after an announcement from the province this week. And I'll read you a little snippet from a Global News article on our website, 980cfpl.ca. It says the Ontario government is considering the value of the province's blue box recycling program. I should say blue box, not green. I'm getting my colours mixed up. It's blue boxes. After a report was delivered to the government with some significant findings... Now, an appointee was put in charge of this review in June as a special advisor on the management of recycling and plastics, and he gave his report to Environment Minister Jeff Urich on Tuesday after six weeks of research and meetings on the issue. It's clear that Ontario's current blue box program is unsustainable, Yurek said in a statement. Lindsay's report, the appointee, uh, notes that recycling rates have stalled for 15 years and up to 30% of what is put into blue boxes is actually sent to landfill. No uniform standards currently exist for blue box contents. And Uric says that's a problem. Okay, so Uric goes on to note that there are like more than 240 municipalities and that have all their own separate lists of what materials are recyclable and acceptable and that it's, you know, it affects cost savings and contamination issues. And so now they're looking at changing the program, which is, you know, there aren't a lot of details right now about what that could mean. And so some people say, hey, maybe this is good. This is a chance to improve how we are recycling in the province. And others are a little bit nervous because, you know, they don't want to see, you know, funding go away for recycling per se. That's not good either. So joining me on the line right now to kind of uh, give us some context into how maybe this affects London and, and his thoughts on this is Jay Stanford, Director of Environmental Programs and Solid Waste. Jay, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me this
4: afternoon. Hey, thanks for having me on, Jeff.
0: So tell me a little bit about what your reaction was to hearing this announcement earlier in the week uh, from Minister Uric about this, uh, this uh, report. I mean, in London, you've been uh, you know a, a leading voice when we talk about the city's initiatives for recycling and, and green bins and the possibility of those down the road. Uh, what was your take on this report?
4: Well, overall it's very good news. It's very good news, but there's some things that I've just got to clarify, sure. Jess, and I'll tell you the first one is when I hear this thirty percent of the material goes to landfill. Now that might be the case for some communities in Ontario, but I can tell you right now that is not the case in London. Our number would be somewhere between five and ten percent of the material that goes in the blue box shouldn't be there in the first place, and those are the materials that go to landfill. So when I hear these big provincial comments, and I understand their ranges, it just always worries me me that people here in London might think it applies to them. And that's why I'm so glad you're having me on to offer some clarification and some, uh, some thoughts on this big announcement this week.
0: Hey, you know what? In, you're absolutely right. Like the, the biggest thing that we want to do in, in conjunction with, uh, you know, officials who know the local stats like the back of their hand uh, is provide some context and, uh, you know, take away some of the alarm. Um, because, yeah, when I heard 30 percent, I was like, wow, that's a lot. You know, it's it's discouraging to think that that much would be headed to the landfill. But the way you phrased it here, it does, it does assuage some fears, I would say.
4: Good. Now, let's get back to the big announcement. And, and this is the thing. A report was received by the minister, mm-hmm. and that's good news. And he said, yes, I've got to do something with this. But what the, the real three highlights of all this work is that right now, the Blue Box program, it's 50% funded by municipal taxes, and it's about 50% funded by industry. The proposal is to move to 100% industry funding. So that's great news for local taxpayers, because that means over a period of time, about three to $4 million would not be paid from the local tax base towards recycling. The other key change would be though, if industry is paying the whole shot for recycling, they want to shift and have the full responsibility for recycling. That means in the future, municipality, which currently, like London, which has 100% regulated responsibility for cycling, that would not be the case. So that would, responsibility, passed over to industry. Hmm. What, what that looks and feels like still has to be determined. But the reason we're doing all this is that we want the recycling system to be strengthened because we want to increase the environmental benefit and the economic benefits to all of Ontario. And to me, that's great news.
0: Certainly. And and you know what? One of the other items that kind of stuck out to me in that uh, brief synopsis that I read out was that um, just kind of highlighting the fact that with more than like 240 municipalities, each one has different rules and different standards. Right. I mean, there could be some similarities. I'm sure that there are. Uh, but this hopefully then, it, it, do you think it would, you know, kind of level the playing field if, if, if we have other actors coming in to kind of uh, standardize things? Do you think it would standardize it? I should probably ask.
4: Well, I think that'll be a very important part of the, the future regulation. Uh, so here in London, we have a, a fairly expanded list of recyclables, but we do hear from time to time that uh, someone has just moved into our community and they used to live in, let's say, Toronto or Mississauga, and there they could recycle X, Y, and Z. Why don't we? Now, there's often very good reasons. They're typically financial or end market-based on why we don't do something. And in this case, what the province is going to be suggesting is that we have standardization all programs would be identical I see that as great because we'll be able to capture economies of scale as materials come together and are sent off to market when people move from community to community and that's very common these days they would be able to take the same recycling behaviors from community to community
0: Yeah, it does seem like that would be, uh, you know, a a good option (laughs) in terms of making things more simple. And and I'm sure uh, as many of us have kind of noticed, if things get too complicated, any type of initiative, if people have to or if they feel like they have to jump through too many hoops, they tend not to do things. So if we can simplify the process of recycling and, you know, reducing, reusing, recycling, all that good stuff, um, hopefully more people will get on board with it, too, if there's less hassle for them on an individual level.
4: Well, that's right. And I also think because industry produces these materials in the first place, they know what can be easily recycled, and they also know what materials are difficult to recycle. Industry will be encouraged to produce things that are more easily recycled, and they're cheaper to recycle. So you can just see how the synergies will really take over here when industry takes over that responsibility. But good things take time. And so if someone says, is this going to happen next year? Absolutely not. I wish it were because that money, <laughs> revenue stream for London or the fact that we don't have to pay for recycling would be ideal. But it is literally going to take four to six years for this transition to go through. So it's not just around the corner. It's a good couple years off. So in the interim, the most important thing we can do here in London is to continue to do what we have been doing very well at, is recycle the same materials, make sure that they're not contaminated with non-recyclable materials, some people call it wish cycling. I really wish I could recycle this. I wish I could recycle that. Well, if it's not on the list here in London, it's not on for a very good reason. We don't want those materials because they tend to reduce the value of the existing materials that are being recycled. And right now we're competing in global markets. And it is paramount that materials from London are as clean as possible. And for the most part, Londoners are doing a great job for us.
0: Well, that's good. I'm glad to hear that we get a, a pretty good report card when it comes to our activities here, and uh, it is encouraging to hear you kind of, you know, contextualize this and uh, you know let people know that it's it, it is it will be fingers crossed a good thing once we're able to get some traction moving and it, yeah, like you said, all good things take time.
4: They they do they do, but in the interim, we as I mentioned, we just can't let our guard down because. Every day there's a new article out there about the difficulties in recycling in North America and how we're competing with markets in China and India, and all of that is very true. It is very much a global recycling system now, and one of the best things we can do is try our best to return all those materials right here into the Ontario economy. That means the more we recycle, the better. The more of the same materials, the better off we are. And finally, creating those jobs in Ontario and even better in the London area, That's what this should all be about. And we're seeing sites of that occurring right now. And uh, this new report that we're talking about and the upcoming regulation will push that a lot further.
0: Fantastic. Well, Jay, thank you so much for taking a few moments to chat with us this afternoon and, uh, you know, uh, give us some perspective on this. And as always, I very much appreciate hearing from you and, and, and learning from your knowledge.
4: Hey, thanks for having me on, Jeff. Have a great afternoon.
0: You as well. Take care. That's Jay Stanford, Director of Environmental Programs and Solid Waste, talking about uh, the new report on Ontario's Blue Bin Program and changes that are likely coming down the pipe to that. Very interesting. Sounds like it will be promising. OK, we need to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to be talking about another uh, city-related initiative, and it's new, and it's called Home Sweet London It's uh, something that City Hall has put into place at a couple of locations, community locations, to welcome newcomers to the city. That's coming up on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to the program. It's Jess Brady here filling in for Mike this week. He's on vacation. Before the break, I told you that uh, we were going to be talking about a program that has been launched by the City of London. They're calling it Home Sweet London. And it's meant to give some more resources to newcomers to the city. Yeah. Set up at a couple of locations. It's really neat. It's very, very cool. Very high tech, if you will. It's very 21st century, I should say. It involves iPads. It's neat. So I have on the line right now, Jill Tansley. With the City of London's Social Services Department, and she's going to explain a little bit more about uh, about the initiative. Jill, thanks so much for joining us this afternoon. I appreciate it.
5: Thank you, Jess. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: So, as I mentioned uh, just before uh, coming on the line with you, we are talking about Home Sweet London and new tools that are available for people who are coming into the city uh, to to get acquainted with it a little bit better. Tell us about this initiative. What's going on with it? That's
5: right. Thanks, Jess. Well, it's a newcomer welcome kiosk. Uh, They were launched yesterday. Uh, One is in the lobby of City Hall on Dufferin Avenue. The other is at the new Bostwick Community Center on Southdale. And um, as you can imagine, when one is is a newcomer to London, they may be far from family. There may be some language barriers they may not be familiar with neighborhoods or services available and what we've done is we have installed pads which are welcome kiosks at city hall in, and and one at uh, the Bostwick community center and these these kiosks allow users to access free of charge, uh, the immigration.london
0: web portal that
5: provides information on, on all kinds of services and programs available to them in their own language.
0: That was my next question was, uh, you know, what kinds of, uh, I guess, resources are available and are they available in different languages? That's fantastic. How, do you know offhand how many different languages uh, it's translated into?
5: Well, we're using the Google Translate tool, and uh, my estimate is that there are about 40 different languages available,
0: Um, so it's, it's fairly comprehensive. Yes, it certainly sounds like it. And, uh, you know, that's that's uh, such an important thing that and and also I feel like it would give people a lot of comfort and a sense of relief because so often uh, it's it's an anxious moment when you're trying to communicate with other people and you're trying to get your point across and and learn and, you know, uh, ask questions and things like that. And if you can't, uh, you know, properly convey that message, I mean, for sure it would it would cause people some stress
5: exactly exactly i should point out to your listeners just that london has excellent settlement services it really has a huge array of services Uh, and this is not meant to replace those services this this is is a guide if you will to how to access those services um in in two areas of the city we'll start with that and um if if they work we'll try other locations
0: it sounds like it's, it's really neat. And, uh, you know, I think it's a good point that you've made there, Jill, about uh, this isn't meant to replace the established services. I, I sort of see it as, uh, you know, when any one of us uh, does a quick Google search on our phone for basic details about something or to find out where else they can get more details. This is kind of like frontline access uh, that, that puts people in touch with eventually the services that they'll need.
5: That's right. That's right. So you'll find on the site. You'll find, for example, um, tips on how to get a job, uh, where to where to attend school or where to enroll your children in school. Um, settling in in London. There, are, of course. Uh, uh there are of course links to all the settlement services in London. Uh, there's a section in French specifically uh, for uh, French language uh, newcomers and uh, there's a section that leads to the London and Middlesex local immigration partnership So there's quite a there's quite uh, an array of of links on the site and we're really hoping that newcomers to the city can
0: go down to city
5: city hall or to to bostwick to use these services
0: and now as you mentioned it's only only started up as of yesterday but are there any initial i guess reports of how many people are using the ipads or just you know staff in those areas if they're if they're seeing how many people are are coming to check it out
5: i I can't give you those numbers yet jess um but I do know that the there there was some interest at the bostwick uh location um for certain and also uh i believe at city city hall, but we'll have those we'll have those numbers later um I might point out if I could where this emerged from um last June. City Council endorsed an immigration strategy, a newcomer strategy. And uh, the objective behind that is to attract and integrate more newcomers to London. And so that is where this initiative arises from. It's embedded in in the city's strategic plan. And we hope to have uh, other initiatives in the future um and for example we're going to be holding a uh, hosting a newcomer day in in october in partnership with the london public library
0: that's fantastic and so what type of activities would be involved in that day then i know it's it's casting an eye fairly uh, down the road there ahead of us but that's okay it's it's good to to learn more about what's happening what what sort of stuff will be going on that day
5: well we're 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 planning, as you can imagine, but we will have tours of City Hall. We'll have an information fair uh, showcasing services available in London. And uh, we're going to have a presentation by our human resources staff on working at the city. And then the focus will shift to the London Public library, the the center branch, um, where they will also have all kinds of activities for children and families, Um, some story time um, in different languages. Uh, The London and Middlesex Local Immigration Partnership will have a human library and uh, we'll be co-hosting a citizenship ceremony with the library as
0: well. Fantastic. And uh, obviously, we'll be, I'm sure, checking in with you uh, further down the road to to hear more about that as, as we get closer to October. Um, but Jill, that's that's great. And thank you so much for, you know, talking with us today about uh, the new iPads and the new initiative there with Home Suite London. And again, I believe you said the website, but it's immigration.london.ca, right? That's right. Fantastic. Well, Jill, thank you so much for your time this afternoon.
5: Thank you very much, Jess. Okay. Have a good day. You bye too. Bye.
0: Okay, we're heading into news. When we come back from the break, we're going to be talking about something probably that a lot of kids and parents don't want to think about quite yet. Back to school. Not just back to school, but some of the stress that can come along with that and maybe how to deal with it. That's coming up on London Live on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to the program. It's Jess Brady here. I'm your guest host this week. Mike's on vacation. So before the break, I told you that... We are very quickly approaching the back-to-school season. I'm sure you've probably already started seeing the commercials for places like Staples and Walmart touting all of their back-to-school options. Tis the season. It's always weird. Now that I'm out of school, and for transparency's sake, I have been out of school for quite some time now. But it is weird to me. Uh, to not be going back to school, it's a little bit easier, but I tell you that first year that I was working full time in the quote unquote real world when I was not going to university anymore, oh, that was weird. I felt like I needed to go out and <laughs> buy some books, <laughs> get some pens and pencils or something just to it was is very strange, surreal feeling. But anyway, uh, it can be a very stressful time of year, not only for kids which you would you might expect, but also for parents. And perhaps you are a parent, perhaps you know some parents and you're like, "Yeah, I buy that. It's stressful." Well, there was a survey that was recently done and it was commissioned by Herbalife Nutrition. Okay. I'm more interested in the in the data that kind of came up from it. So this article talked about it. It surveyed 2,000 parents of school-aged children. So we're talking 5-year-olds to 18-year-olds. And it revealed that 57% find the back to school season to be the most stressful part of the year. That's 57% of parents. So some of their worries are about, like, if their kids are gonna make friends, uh, if their lunches will be good, if they'll have academic success, uh, and that parents apparently worry more than their kids 29% versus 12. Hmm. Very interesting. So obviously, it's not great. I mean, everyone is is going to worry. That That is a part of life. But the problem becomes if these worries are overwhelming, right? And it's always great to look at ways to try and mitigate those fears or work through them, right? That's very important to keep things in perspective as much as possible so that they don't weigh on you unduly. So joining me on the line right now to talk a little bit more about these stresses and maybe how we can tackle them is Alistair Henning. He's the marketing director for Anxiety Canada. Alistair, thanks so much for joining us.
6: It's my pleasure.
0: So as I was mentioning, this is, uh, you know, it's a busy time of year. We're trying to get our back to school shopping done for those uh, people who do have little ones or if they themselves are going back to school, perhaps. But it, it can weigh on a lot of people, can't it?
6: Oh, yeah, totally. We hear this a lot. Uh, we hear that going back to school or going to school for the first time uh, for kids, of course, uh can trigger anxiety uh, in children but also for parents um, just because it is such a big transition i mean uh, they're used to having kids around the house and you know often in the summer or you know just at home in general and then all of a sudden there's this big shift to like school and all of the performance requirements for that and you know getting there and uh, everything so for sure and how this shows up for us because we'd have so many uh, online resources to help people cope with anxiety generally at www.anxietycanada.com. Uh, we find that uh, the amount of web traffic that we get to all of our resources on our website really spikes to coincide with the beginning of the school year. Um, and we've, we've seen this consistently. So um, definitely in terms of just people calling in and talking to us uh, anecdotally, and then also for this web traffic, like it's, it's very clear that this is a real thing.
0: That's very interesting. I never even thought about the web traffic, but it's amazing that you can see so clearly, like just right there in front of our faces that yeah, this is a time when people are seeking out some resources and when you really start to think about it, it's it's not as surprising as initially it might seem when you start to think, "Oh yeah, okay, yeah, there are there are a lot of moving parts uh to getting back into school uh or starting it for the first time as you said. One thing that uh stuck out to me is for parents specifically cash cash issues in terms of having to spend to buy new clothes and depending on how old uh, the kids are, their supplies, different things that they need, the older that they get. I I would imagine that people like parents are are worried about that for sure.
6: Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, it's really uh, easy to fixate on specific things like that. Uh, And what we've found and a lot of the resources that we have on our website really emphasize uh, making a plan to, uh, you know, to obviously take the steps required to um, deal with the specific triggers, like obviously, you know, saving properly so that you can pay for things, for example, but also uh, having a plan for how you're going to manage how you feel about that. So actually on our website, we do have a specific portion called uh, MAPS, which is My Anxiety Plan, uh, which actually we have one for kids, uh, you know, for example, to deal with back-to-school things, but also for, for adults in general, and it definitely helps with these kinds of issues if you're worried specifically about your kids going back to school or something like that. Um, you know, making a plan, uh, you know, using the step-by-step uh, for how you're going to kind of cope with your feelings uh, can be really effective.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I feel like the biggest thing, it's kind of like an old adage, right? It's like to tackle an issue, first you have to kind of recognize it and and just lay things out, the reality of the situation so that you know kind of what you're dealing with. And I feel like that's uh, very applicable to a lot of different uh, parts of our lives, no matter where the issue, an issue crops up. It's it's a matter of recognizing it in order to be able to face it effectively.
6: Totally, totally. Uh, and so uh, if you uh, go to our website or if you Google just anxiety, panic, coping with back to school, um, we have a really great article on this point and, uh, you know, basically, it emphasizes that if once you sort of deal with the basics, which is making sure that everyone's getting adequate food and sleep and, you know, self-care and everything like that for parents as well, uh, really what a lot of it comes down to like listening to your child and then also listening to yourself and really, you know, trying to understand like where are these emotions coming from and what is the trigger there. Um, and really after that, you can get into more of the problem solving. And as I said, like developing more of an action plan for uh, you know, specific steps of how you're going to cope with how you're feeling um, and getting back to hopefully focusing on the positive things, which are like, you know, school obviously can be a really, you know, well, obviously it's important to go and you know, stay in school, uh, but also it's just really, uh, you know, it's great to meet new friends and, um, you know, do uh, all the things that are positive about going to school. So focus on that. Um, and as a parent, it's really good to be self-aware about these things.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And I think it's, I, I I wonder, does Anxiety Canada, you know, talk about um, having dialogue between parent and child and even the parents saying, you know what, like, I'm nervous about these things too. Like, you're not alone if you're, if you're like a little bit hesitant going into your first few days of, of school or weeks or what have you. It's important, as you were saying, for parents to be self-aware, but I'm sure communicating with their kids is is important too, eh?
6: Oh, totally. Empathy is so important. And I think it just makes feel, things feel a lot more real and like relatable. And, and that's really key. So yeah, totally.
0: Absolutely. Well, uh, Alistair, thank you so much for your time this afternoon and sharing these really valuable tips. And again, you, you've said it, but I'll say it again, anxietycanada.com uh, for a bunch of these resources that we've talked about. Alistair, thanks so much for your time.
6: It's my pleasure. Uh, thank you so much for having us.
0: You take care. Bye for now. Bye. That was Alistair Henning, uh, marketing director with Anxiety Canada, and lots of good tips on on how to kind of grapple with this time of year. It's there's a lot going on, uh, as he said. You know, like having a basic uh, outline of how you're going to deal with new schedules and uh, you know different tasks and homework and making sure everyone's getting to sleep on time and getting up on time. That's that's a struggle for me even now. <laughs> it's it's not easy when you're transitioning uh, back from summer hours uh, into your everyday school routine. It's it's tough. There's a lot on the go. But I think Alistair had some great points about also focusing on the positive and all the good things that come out of going back to school and can come out of going back to school. While also acknowledging that yeah, there could be there could be some some anxious moments. But you know everyone's going to work through them together. I think that's really important. And it's great. Excellent to know that uh, there are uh, agencies like Anxiety Canada, which is a not pr- not for profit uh, that are out there to uh, provide some some feedback and some tools to help everybody, parents, kids manage the stress of heading back to school. Yeah, it's a it's a big time not to not to be glib with this at all, but I know that <laughs> one of the biggest like issues with back to school so often is shopping for clothing and the stress of uh You know, just getting the right stuff, not spending an arm and a leg on things. And I know that uh, this is this is a very lighthearted issue uh, or like anecdote, I should say, not issue. But when I was little and going back to school, the hardest thing for me for buying things for back to school clothing wise were shoes, running shoes. I can hear my mother Nodding emphatically (laughs) as she listens to me on the radio this afternoon. If she's tuning in, I don't know. I shouldn't presume. Uh, But it was always a struggle to get shoes. (sighs) Because they never fit right. It's a whole thing. Again, very low on the priority list in terms of things that actually weigh on you. But still, it was an item on the checklist that needed to be ticked off. And it was always a struggle. My mom will say, you wore tried on hundreds of shoes And they would always move or not fit the right way. Oh, my God. It was rough. It was rough, Londoners, London listeners. So once I found a brand (laughs) that fit properly and felt comfortable, we just bought those every year. It was like, no, we're going back to those ones. That's it. And they were perfect. So there you have it. But as Alistair said, identify the issue and then make a plan to handle it. And again, if you're wondering about where you can access their resources, it's anxietycanada.com. Okay, we need to take a quick break. When we come back, we're not entirely leaving the school and uh, education, I guess, realm, I should say, because we're going to be talking about some neat things that are happening the last few weeks of the summer over at the library, the central branch downtown, right on Dundas. In uh, Galleria. Although it's not called Galleria anymore. That's showing you how old I am. (laughs) I always still think of it as that name. But we are talking about cool things that are happening within the Children's Library over at the Central Branch on Dundas in the downtown. That's coming up on London Live on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to the program. It's Jess Brady, guest hosting this week. Mike's on vacation. Well-deserved time off. So I'm on the other side of the talk booth. That's right. The fantastic producer, Kelly, is sitting where I usually sit in the mornings, and I am opposite her across the glass. So before the break, I told you that we were going to kind of stay with the theme of educational activities for little ones, that sort of thing. And I, this is the beauty of Twitter, first of all. Uh, I kind of got the inspiration for this segment uh, when I saw a tweet from uh, a friend of mine from university. And she works at the library. And she was talking about these cool book charms that they were making for an activity um, with the tweens and teens that come out to some of their programming. And it was so cool. So I, I tweeted at her. I at mentioned her and asked about, uh, you know, if there were other other items going on. And she said, oh, we're always busy. We have really great things going on right through the rest of the month. So we got in touch with the library uh, to see if we could learn a little bit more about what's going on. And that is where Ellie Contursi comes in. She's a supervisor of the Children's Library. And she joins me to talk about all the great stuff that's going on there. Ellie, thanks so much for joining us this afternoon. I appreciate you taking the time out of your busy day.
7: Oh, it's my pleasure. Happy to do it.
0: So it has been a lot of stuff going on at the library. I mean, there always is. And we should say that, first of all. (laughs) For
7: sure. Especially during
0: the summer months, because we have uh, little ones who are off from school. And there are tons of great uh, programming uh, sessions that are going on. And we are into the the dog days of summer here. We only have a few weeks left before the the kids go back to school. And that means that you are not slowing down at all. eh? Tell us about some of the programs that are going on.
7: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh my gosh, we have, where do we start? Uh, it has been a busy summer, I can tell you that. Um, so, I, as I said, I'm, I'm from the Children's Library, so we offer every Wednesday morning a, an art studio, and it's for children of all ages, and it's happening every Wednesday at 10.00 until 1130, so that's one of the things we do. We've also got um, Captain Corbin the Magical Pirate coming to the Children's Library on Monday, August 12th in the afternoon. Any of our programs, and this goes for the entire system, can be found at our website, which is www.lpl.ca. Of course, when you come to the library, we are just a wonderful space to be in for children. We always have activities out on our tables. There are toys to play with for the little ones and, um, of course, things to do for the older ones, too.
0: And one of those uh, items, or, or I guess should say, programs or sessions uh, for the for mm-hmm. the older kids that I I was chatting with a friend about online actually, uh, self publishing yeah. for teens, and that's really yeah. neat. Tell us about that. That one's coming up, too. It's on Saturday,
7: August 24th, from 2 to 3. Um, The teen librarian, she has a connection with uh, someone who's been a self-published author, and this woman is coming in to talk about all the different things that you need to think about if you want to publish a book or some sort of piece of writing um and this program that we're offering is free as are most of our programs and it's this one's meant for ages 12 and up and it's drop in
0: that's fantastic it's it's neat to be able to offer up these programs that not only are fun but they are educational as well and they give kids a chance to kind of explore uh different avenues i guess that they might not have thought of especially you know creative writing
7: Mhm. Yes. We're hoping that we'll get a a good bunch of uh creative teens and tweens coming to that one.
0: <laughs> it's great you know and and just you know something to do uh during the day it, it kind of takes a little bit of the burden off of uh parents caregivers uh guardians whomever is looking after the little ones uh during the summer months and uh, you know help to find a, a neat way to spend those hours and, and just so that it's not you know, not necessarily uh always watching tv or or spending time exactly. in front of a screen right it's getting out and, and, yeah. and actually engaging
7: Yes, and we are really fortunate in downtown here in the Children's Library, we have access to the most beautiful reading garden. It's It's a hidden gem downtown, it truly is. So you can access this lovely space through our doors and take a book out and read under a tree. Listen to the birds twittering. It's so serene, and I know that uh, parents often come with their kids and they have their snacks outside. So we've got the best of both worlds. Nice, cool air conditioning inside, sweet, beautiful uh, outdoor spot in our reading garden.
0: Absolutely, and it's it's funny because uh, I I have always been uh, a pretty avid reader, and I actually still have my very first library card, not from London. Awesome. Uh, yeah, but it's, it's so funny. Like my mom kept it for me, and it's it's her writing. I didn't write my name on it. Um, oh, that's amazing. That's, that's how young I was. <laughs> but yeah, it's yeah. great because libraries, you know, n- not only do they, uh, you know, give a place to go, but it's it's also uh, they open up up the world really through all of the mm-hmm. resources that are there, and, and I find that people in general, uh, not just with kids programming, but they're very surprised by the resources that are on site at the libraries, especially the central branch downtown. I saw some tweets uh, over the last day or so talking about how they have music practice rooms as well, so it really yes. is yes. access to a whole variety of, of different uh, resources.
7: It's so true. Libraries aren't just books anymore. I mean, we are books, don't get me wrong, we love the books, but There are so many other things that the library offers, just in the way of programming and supports, and it's just a, a great place to come and be. We are very open and open to diversity and inclusive, and I'm really proud of what London Public Library represents.
0: Yeah, it's it's funny that I feel like that there are more people who are kind of uh, becoming champions of libraries, even like Mm -hmm. Chrissy Teigen. uh, She was tweeting about going to the library the other day with her little ones and uh, talking about how cool it was. She was getting inspiration from a bunch of different cookbooks. So it's you know what? It's not that anyone should think that libraries are uncool, but this will certainly help their, you know, street cred a little bit.
7: Yeah, yeah, for sure, definitely. It's changed over the years, that is
3: for sure.
0: Well, that's, you know what, it's great. And and the one thing that hasn't changed is the, uh, you know, the great resources, as we've said, uh, that are there. And, um, you know, all the fantastic programming that will continue, fingers crossed, well into the future. So, Ellie, thank you so much for your time today and talking about what's going on. And I believe you said the website before, but if you you wanted to just remind our listeners, again, of where they can find all the information on this.
7: It's www.lpl.ca.
0: Perfect. Love it. Well, Ellie, thank you again for your time and best of luck with all the rest of the summer programming.
7: Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It was my pleasure. We're
0: going to take a quick break. When we come back, I will tell you the best ever reason you will ever have to go to Dairy Queen and get yourself a blizzard. Stay tuned for The Reason. That's coming up on London Live on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to the program. We only have a minute or so left. Just flies by. So before we had that little wee break, I told you that today is your very best reason ever to go get a blizzard from Dairy Queen. And that is because it is the 17th annual Miracle Treat Day. Yeah. 17 years they've been doing this. Fantastic. So the whole premise behind this is that 100% that's 100% of the net proceeds from every Blizzard treat sold across the country will be donated to Children's Miracle Network member hospitals. And that means in London, all of that ice cream cash money is going to Children's Hospital with LHSC. Which is fantastic. The hospital does great work here in our community, serving just thousands and thousands of people uh, from around London and the entire surrounding region. Uh, last year, over one hundred and fifty-seven thousand dollars was raised throughout our region for Children's Hospital on Miracle Treat Day, and it's just it's just really cool. It's no pun intended. Ice cream, cold, also cold hard cash, and cool that you're supporting a fantastic charity. Okay, so you have your marching orders. Get out to Dairy Queen. Buy yourself a blizzard. All the money is going to a fantastic cause. It is, again, the 17th annual Miracle Treat Day. Please go support the cause. That's it from us. We are done for another day. The news with Jacqueline LaBelle is coming up on 980 CFPL.